Hello, I'm Jason Rugard of the Movie Mavericks Podcast. Welcome to a special summer show. Every Friday, I'll be taking a look back to the summer of 1999. This was a box office season that was amongst the most competitive and influential in moviegoing history. On each show, I'll be chronicling the performance, critical response, and historical relevance of the biggest hits and the costliest misfires that shaped the summer of 1999. Episode 2. Our first film is Star Wars The Phantom Menace. On a remote desert planet, two Jedi Knights meet a young boy and forever change the fate of a galaxy. Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. Now playing at a theater near you. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. May 21st, 1999, officially marked the start of the summer movie-going season. Although that year, things kicked off a few days earlier, May 19th to be specific, as George Lucas decided on a Wednesday launch for The Phantom Menace. He reasoned that the midweek launch would give the Star Wars fanatics a few days to see the film, presumably a few times, freeing up weekend seats for families and general audiences. This was met with some backlash by distributor 20th Century Fox, as they wanted to claim the crown of highest grossing opening weekend in box office history. Of course, the film still debuted in the top spot for the weekend of May 21st, with a still bountiful 64 million, but disappointing when considering the opening weekend record of 72 million set by the Jurassic Park sequel on the same weekend back in 1997 box office records would surely fall once word of mouth spread, especially considering that Lucas and 20th Century Fox had cut an unprecedented deal with the nation's theater owners. In order to get a print of The Phantom Menace, theaters had to guarantee that the movie would be playing in their biggest auditoriums for a minimum of 12 weeks. Sensing the demand from the public, theater owners were eager to sign off on the provisions. Unfortunately, bad reviews, terrible word of mouth, and a venomous backlash set in. Mostly aimed at Jar Jar Binks, who became the most disliked character in any film ever. The Star Wars prequel was predicted to beat the high bar set by Titanic to claim the title of the highest grossing movie of all time. It would fall well short totaling out at around 400 million and nearly 800 million worldwide. These eye-popping numbers would make the picture a financial success, but would ultimately divide fans and create a sour attitude towards the forthcoming episodes two and three. At the time of its release, The Phantom Menace was the fastest movie to ever reach 100 million at the box office. In its final tally, a 431 million, currently ranks seventh on the all-time list. Reactions were mixed at the time. While there were plenty of exciting action set pieces, and it was of course nice to have a new Star Wars adventure, many believed the movie was marred with wooden acting, a terrible story, 
and one very bizarre character addition. Hint, he lives at the bottom of a lake, and he pronounces the first person plural as Weeza. Hmm. There are numerous retrospectives out there on the film. In fact, Trevor and I did one for this podcast a few years ago, so I won't go into heavy detail on my analysis. But I do recall a sense of disappointment that set in about 75% of the way through my initial screening of the movie. The pod race sequence at the midway point and the three-way lightsaber duel at the film's climax were the highlights. But the audience I saw that movie with on a sold-out afternoon screening looked confused and angered by what they had just seen. 24 years later, fanatics, critics, and defenders are still talking about this most decisive entry in the Star Wars canon. I'm Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times. I'd like to begin by reviewing The Phantom Menace, a film that involves the early days of characters who are already familiar to us from the first three Star Wars movies. Characters like Obi-Wan Kenobi, Anakin Skywalker, Yoda, and even prototypes of our old friends R2-D2 and C-3PO. As the film opens, an intergalactic trade war is in progress. Qui-Gon and young Obi-Wan Kenobi quickly find a sidekick in the movie's most interesting new character, an alien named Jar Jar Binks. This character, whose movements are based on a performance by the actor Ahmad Best, is completely computer-generated, showing how smoothly reality can interact with special effects in the film. Here is the film's crucial encounter. Qui-Gon meets young Anakin Skywalker on the planet Tatooine, which of course was Luke Skywalker's home in the first film. The Jedi Knight instantly senses that the young boy, played by Jake Lloyd, is suffused by the Force. Here he must part with his mother to be about his father's business, even though the identity of his father is a deep mystery. It wouldn't be Star Wars without a lightsaber duel as the good guys take on the enigmatic Darth Maul. And those wonderful skyscapes give you a taste of the remarkable visuals in The Phantom Menace, which for me are the best elements in this fourth Star Wars film. George Lucas told me in 1990 that after the third film, he put the series on hold until computers could catch up with the ideas in his imagination, and now it looks like they have. Truly astonishing shots in this film, realizing a host of otherworldly creatures. And the film features alien cities and vistas, and my eyes drank them in. There's also a lot of excitement, for example, in a race where young Anakin Skywalker proves he's an instinctive pilot. And there's a vast Senate chamber where the debaters float on platforms in the middle that really arouse my sense of wonder. But maybe there could be a little more human, or maybe we should say character interest in the film. This movie has a lot of setting up to do. It begins the whole saga. It lays the groundwork for relationships which we sense are going to pay off in the next two movies. And so the story level isn't always as interesting as the visuals. Characters are dealing with things that are going to happen later in the series rather than dealing in the here and now sometimes. Still, this movie is a remarkable achievement, a marriage of imagination and special effects, and my thumb is up with a lot of admiration. Our next film is The Mummy. On May 7th, oh my God, it does exist. Universal Pictures presents a world you never imagined. I called the doorway to hell. A mystery you never expected. This man was buried alive. And an adventure you will never forget. <laughs> the Mummy, rated PG-13, starts Friday at theaters everywhere.
Memorial Day weekend has traditionally served as the kickoff to the season. But that trend would be altered after the phenomenal success of Universal Pictures' The Mummy. Having opened on May 1, 1999 to an eye-popping $40 million, the movie would pull in around $100 million in domestic ticket sales before Star Wars hit screens three weeks later. And when the space sequel arrived, The Mummy still was able to find an audience, totaling out at $150 million stateside and over $450 million in worldwide theatrical grosses. These numbers were impressive enough for Universal to order an immediate sequel, which would arrive to even larger box office numbers in May of 2001, and a spin-off film in 2002 that would serve as a screen debut of Dwayne Johnson. The franchise proved so popular that Universal Studios Hollywood added a mummy roller coaster to their attraction lineup in their amusement parks. Universal executives had been attempting to get an updated version of the 1932 film on screen since the late 70s. Directors such as George Romero, Clive Barker, and Joe Dante, who wanted Daniel Day-Lewis to play the mummy, all were attached to the project at some point. Even Oscar-nominated writer John Sayles worked on a draft of a script that went unproduced. Momentum was halted, and the production laid in development hell where it languished until 1998. After suffering an ass-kicking in 1998, Universal's highest-grossing film of the summer was George Clooney, Jennifer Lopez's crime flick, Out of Sight, they were in desperate need of a hit, and ideally a franchise starter. In comes writer-director Steven Summers, who was given an 80 million budget to produce a large-scale action period piece in the vein of Indiana Jones. Summers offered the lead to Tom Cruise, who would go on to star in the 2017 reboot, but it would be Brendan Fraser who would lead the film. The producers and the director had been impressed with the box office performance of George of the Jungle and with Fraser's charisma and leading man potential. Unfortunately, it seems that Stephen Summers' blockbuster status was revoked, and he seems to be semi-retired now, while his follow-ups The Mummy Returns, Van Helsing, and G.I. Joe were all massively entertaining, none managed to garner much respect from the critics. The Mummy would be rebooted in 2017, with Tom Cruise in the role. As I had mentioned earlier, he had turned down the lead role in the 1999 project before Frasier was offered it. The Cruise vehicle was a passable action picture, but it was a non-starter as far as franchise potential. As for now, The Mummy lays dormant in the vast library of universal titles with no planned development. And after Frasier's recent resurgence, there was talk about a return to the series. But honestly, he deserves better than that. I'm Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times, and across the aisle from me is this week's guest critic. I'm David Anson, movie critic for Newsweek magazine. Our first movie is The Mummy, an utterly goofy, unreasonably entertaining exercise in total nonsense. This is one of those movies where you're laughing at the screen and you're laughing at yourself at the same time for buying this stuff. This mummy is as loud and action-packed as the original 1932 mummy with Boris Karloff was sinister and quiet and brooding. It plays like low-rent Indiana Jones, but has a lot of energy and the courage to go right to the wall with its lunatic story. I have a weakness for movies like this. I can't sit here with a straight face and tell you it's a great movie, but it brought back fond memories of Anaconda and Congo 
and movies like that that you're almost ashamed to admit you like, but you did like it, and I like this one. It's true. I did, too. I mean, the really? bottom line is, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's fun. I mean, it isn't a very good movie in many respects. It's a popcorn movie. It's kind of obviously the son of the son of Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> as far as the movie itself is concerned, it goes right back to all those other Pharaoh, Egypt, mummy, uh, down into the tomb. Right. Right. Uh, kinds of pictures, and yeah. I like that kind yeah. of stuff where the doors creak open and yeah. things I mean, come out of the I mean, the redeeming quality is it's totally silly, but it knows it's silly. Yeah. You know, yeah. it, it is exactly what it is. And I think Brendan Fraser is, is very charming. Yes, he is, lead, yeah. You yeah. know, and there's some nice chemistry between, between him and Rachel Weisz. And really neat special effects involving those flesh-eating beetles that they bury the guy alive with. I like that yeah, scene. Yeah, the scarabs are good. Our last film is The Love Letter. DreamWorks Pictures presents... A love letter. She thinks it's from him. He assumes it's from her. And life in this simple town... Nice spot. ...is about to get complicated. I think I just got lucky. I don't understand why you know it's for you, and it's not for me. The Love Letter. Janet, watch the kids. I got him. Okay. Daddy's gonna go play with his fire hose. That didn't sound right. Rated PG-13. Starts Friday, May 21st. Love Letter was released as a counter-programming move. And starring Spielberg's wife, Kate Capshaw, the picture failed to deliver as its prospective audience never showed up. It co-stars Tom Selleck, Ellen DeGeneres, and Tom Everett Scott, and was inexplicably directed by Chinese filmmaker Peter Chan, someone whose previous work does not suggest aptitude in dealing with light romantic comedies. The Love Letter was budgeted at 20 million, considered a safe bet in the hopes that moms who were dropping their kids off at Star Wars would buy a ticket to this as a time killer. But even that modest business model was unsuccessful. The movie was declared an outright bomb when it opened up in the fifth spot for the weekend with 2.6 million. But a closer look at the numbers reveals something different. With Star Wars claiming most of the screens in America and the continued strong performance of The Mummy, Entrapment, and The Matrix, there wasn't a lot of auditoriums available. So DreamWorks was only able to book the picture on 769 screens, resulting in a per screen average that would put it third for the weekend based on that metric. But the following weekend, grosses plunged by nearly 60%, and the film ultimately totaled out at 8.3 million in sales. In all honesty, I forgot this movie even existed. I tried to track it down to watch and it's only behind a paywall, so I decided to watch the trailer and TV spots to get a feel for the material. It looks likable and instantly forgettable, while also reminding me of a time when Tom Selleck and Ellen DeGeneres were populating feature films. The Love Letter would be the first outright failure of the season, and while modestly budgeted, it still lost money for the studio and never found a wider audience on home video. That will do it for today's episode. Check back next week when we take a look at three more films from the summer of 1999. Thanks for joining us.